We have two dogs in our home. Aria is a two-year-old puppy who definitely needs help with her portions. And Nala is a 10-year-old dog who is living a great life and we wanna keep feeding her well so she can hang in there with us for a lot longer. The farmer's dog makes it easy to keep them healthy, which can give you more quality years with them. The farmer's dog makes and delivers fresh, healthy dog food. It's recommended by vets, nutritionally balanced and made from human-grade ingredients in safe, clean kitchens. It's the best option for dogs at all life stages. It doesn't matter if your dog is young or old. It's always the right time to begin investing in their health, helping you live more healthy, happy, and full years together. You can get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash vanished. Let the farmer's dog know we sent you. Use our code or click podcast after you sign up for your first box. Hey, Tenderfoot listeners, Dennis Cooper here. If you're a fan of Culpable, then you know we normally focus on one case for an entire season, like the season one case of Christian Andriacchio and the season two case of Brittany Stikes. As I continue working on season three, I'll be using this platform to help more families in their fight for justice. Last fall, I brought you six cases over six weeks. Now, I'm bringing you five more. From Tenderfoot TV, another installment of Culpable Case Review comes May 17th, Check out this clip. So she jumped over her friend into the driver's seat, hit the gas. Her foot did not let off the gas. She hit a mailbox. I think she rolled into a tree and she was already dead. From Tenderfoot TV, Culpable Case Review is coming May 17th. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus for early access and ad-free listening. Learn more at tenderfootplus.com. Like I said, I I don't know who you're connected to, but especially if if you're somewhere at night rambling around the county, just, just be careful. I just, I have a lot of distrust because of things that I've, I've, I've seen. And when my father-in-law was uh, was sheriff, I, I know for, I'll say, 95% facts that a murder was covered up as a suicide. Things go on there. I don't put anything past anybody. Everybody can have a, a, a dark night of the soul. More than 40 GBI agents swarmed a pecan orchard in Ben Hill County this afternoon. Not one, but two former students from that school under arrest. With the intent to and did cause serious bodily harm to the person of Tara Grinstead. Charging Ryan Alexander Duke with the murder of Tara Grinstead. From Tinderfoot TV at Industrious Atlanta, this is Up and Vanished, the investigation of Tara Grinstead. I'm your host, Payne Lindsay. She told me in 011, it was a tan shirt like sheriff deputies wear. And then there was dark brown pants with a tan stripe down each side. What kind of uniform does this look sheriff, like? Sheriff's department. 
Several months ago, before the arrest of Ryan Duke and Bo Dukes, Maurice Godwin shared a tip with me that he felt was very important. Right around the time I began looking into this information, the news of the arrest broke, and the entire focus of my investigation shifted instantly. But now that the dust is settling, I've gone back through all this information, and this tip in particular stood out to me. It all started with an email. He received an anonymous email from someone who claimed that they had found an old sheriff's uniform buried in the woods in Osceola. This is how the email read. A law enforcement type uniform was found buried approximately six feet within the embankments of what is now a dry creek bed. The 911 dispatcher asked that I remove the items from the location I'd found them in and bring them to the sheriff's department. The items I turned in are one beige, short-sleeved law enforcement type shirt with circular dark brown patches on each shoulder, having no visible markings on them. One pair of size 42 dark brown trousers with beige stripes down each leg and with the words Comfort Action 3 printed on the inside waistband. I asked to leave my name and number with the Irwin County Sheriff's Department dispatcher in the event anyone needed to know the location of where I'd found the clothing. I wrote my name and number and was told he, I didn't ask his name, would turn over the items to Investigator Rogers in the morning. It appears the rushing current caused by heavy rains in the past has eroded the creek's embankments, exposing the clothing that was deeply embedded in the root system and barely visible. I found the shirt on the embankment directly across from the trousers. I stopped looking for anything more and left the location in the event the area needed to be investigated. I'm not sure what, if anything, else is in the mounds of dirt. This creek fills quickly after heavy rainfall, and the area the items were found in may be covered in water soon. This may have nothing at all to do with Tara Grinstead's case, but many people I've spoken with suggested I write to your agency because the area hasn't been investigated. Whether related to Miss Grinstead's case or not, it seems suspicious to find such items, with no other clothing found, buried or not, in the same vicinity. I wasn't sure what, if anything, I should do about contacting someone other than the sheriff's department. Please accept my apologies if I have inconvenienced anyone by writing this. This person found an entire uniform, buried in the woods. Shirt, pants, shoes, everything. So she, she bagged it. She took it to the Irwin County Sheriff's Department. And, and the Irwin County Sheriff's Department, they never got back with her. Of course, you know, with so much mud and water and stuff, anything forensically is probably lost out of it. It is odd that you would find something like that buried in the middle of nowhere. And finally, I got her contact information and talked to her, and I have that, that recording. Eventually, Maurice spoke to her on the phone to get some more details. And this is what she told him. I contacted the police department and they told me just to put it in a bag and bring it up there to them and so I did that and I never heard anything out of it. It was a short sleeve shirt and the pants were tan and they had a dark brown stripe of them and I even went to the point of calling my uncle who was in law enforcement in Cordell. I even called him to come down here with me because it scared me so bad and I didn't want to mess with it and he's told me, he's the one that told me that, that policemen aren't supposed to dispose of uniforms like that. You're supposed to turn them back in. Besides the fact that this was a strange way to dispose of a police uniform, there was something else about the uniform in particular that made this discovery appear a bit more ominous. 
it had the circle on the sleeve of it, but there was no patch there. There was a brown spot where a patch was supposed to be. On each side were badges, but the, the center area of the badge, each side on the sleeve, had been cut out. The sheriff patches on both sides of the uniform that would normally indicate the department and the officer's name had been ripped off. When the creek bed's dry, it's about a seven foot, seven foot from the ground to the dirt road. So I actually found it very kind of, when they redid the road, that's the only thing I can figure out when it got there. So somebody made a quick stop and, 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 and went in the middle of the night and buried that. Or they threw it out when they knew that somebody was going to come back in and fill it up the next day. I don't know. And this place isn't that terribly far away from the place that burnt down right after it happened either. You mean Snapdragon? Right. It's not terribly far. It's within five miles of there. Osceola is pretty tiny, so the fact that this was found relatively close to the house that mysteriously burned down on Snapdragon Road wasn't that big of a surprise, but it was definitely interesting. This story grabbed my attention, but as far as its relevance to Tara, I was pretty unsure and even doubtful. If this lady did in fact find this uniform buried in the woods, I wanted to at least see some pictures of it to prove that this was even real. She, she actually photographed it and videotaped it, but she said that the computer was old and it had uh, a broken screen and she couldn't get the video or anything to work, uh, couldn't pull it off the hard drive or whatever. I even had somebody offer to pay for it, but that never went through it. She claimed that her computer's hard drive wasn't working and she couldn't recover the files. So at this point, I was ready to drop the lead entirely. Even if she was telling the truth about this, it having any link to Tara seemed like a big stretch. And without being able to see the items myself and prove that they even existed, this was just a lost cause. But then about a month later, she called Maurice again and said that she fixed her computer and recovered the files. And to my surprise, she sends over several pictures of the uniform and a video of it. Now she had my attention. Here is the spot where the pants were found. Right down below it is the shoe that I found that was buried in the ground just a little bit deeper than it is now. Maybe six, seven feet away from where I found the pants. That's where the shirt was found. That's the patch on the left sleeve. Look, show them the zipper. There's the zipper. It zips up and it buttons up. But see, there's a patch that is size 42. And on the inside, it says Comfort Action. This is the embankment up to the dirt road. It's about seven feet from the top of the dirt road to where we're at now. These items were found approximately six feet in the ground. After examining the pictures and video of the uniform and comparing it to the uniforms worn by local law enforcement, Maurice and I determined that it was a sheriff's uniform, likely an Irwin County sheriff's uniform. So what exactly did all this mean? I'll be honest with you. I still don't know. But as I learned more and more about this search that happened in the pecan orchard shortly after Tara went missing, it got my gears turning. Let's back up for a moment. According to Dusty Vassie, 
and several inside sources I have, local law enforcement conducted a search of the pecan orchard not too long after Tara went missing. Based on a tip they received that Ryan and or Bo had mentioned killing Tara to some friends at a party. And according to my source, the agency that conducted this search was both the Irwin County and Ben Hill County Sheriff's Department. Uh, Irwin County deputy drove to the Ben Hill County line, met a Ben Hill County deputy, and they went to the pecan orchard. They didn't look in the right spot, but they did look around in the pecan orchard. I believe this party happened on the following Friday after she went missing. There was a bonfire that Bo and Ryan were having with several friends. This also lined up with what one of Bo's friends told me, a former Army buddy. What I remember is that he helped get rid of a body on the pecan farm and he burned it. There was a party spot, I guess, that they talked about. kind of remember Bo saying that they had a party out there. I remember it being real haunting. Enough for me to remember. If you're having parties out there routinely, that gives you a way to conceal. You know, a fire just burning out there is going to raise questions. But a fire out there where a bunch of people are partying, that's not as peculiar. And I think that could have even been, you know, the plan. It was possible that on that night, Bo and Ryan were still burning Tara's remains in front of people. Perhaps Bo or Ryan mentioned to one of their friends at this party in a drunken state what had happened to Tara while they were still destroying evidence right there in front of everybody. I've since learned all the names of those who were there that night, and almost all of them are in that picture I'd been sent back in August of 2016 when this podcast first started. The guy with his arm around Bo in the picture, who I'm calling Jim Deal, was also listed on the suicide note. And as you heard at the end of the last episode... I mean, the day that they arrested uh, Ryan, me and him was talking in the store down there, Silla. He said, you know, I think it was Bo that said something about this is where Tara died or we burn her or, or something of that nature. And somebody told the cops and they just didn't pursue it. One of his friends confirms that Jim Deal knew what happened to Tara too. Because someone at that party, either Ryan or Bo, likely told him. And then Jim Deal, along with a few other friends from the party, informed local law enforcement. Then they went out to search there. And for whatever reason, they searched in the wrong spot and never found anything. Didn't inform the GBI about it and just went about their business. So with one or both of the local sheriff's departments having conducted this search, the discovery of that sheriff's uniform found buried in the dirt seemed a little more ironic. Is it related? I don't know. But right now, I'm putting all the cards out there on the table. All this is happening in real time right now. And every time I mention something new on the podcast, someone new reaches out to me with more information. For example, in the last episode, I was going through the old newspaper archives with Dusty Vassy, and we found an article about a search that happened in Queensland, which is essentially right where the pecan orchard is. The officers listed as those in charge of the searches were Alan Morgan and Nelson Polk, both from the Irwin County Sheriff's Department. Within 24 hours of releasing the last episode, I got a phone call from someone who had more information about these officers and that search in the pecan orchard. I mean, he was one of the main investigators. He took on, you know, took on the diagramming of the search, telling the search parties where to go. And he rode with Nancy Grace when she came down here. He was the one that took her around, showed her everything they had searched. From, from what Alan said to us, and I mean, this is back like... It, this goes all the way back to when they went to that pecan orchard the first time. Alan Morgan, both Nelson Polk and Alan Morgan, were part of that 
first investigation, just a couple of weeks after she went missing in that pecan orchard, they learned of the party scenario and where the party was. There was a tip given to them, from what I understand, about the party and fire. Alan Morgan never made it up to the Pekin Orchard. Alan was told when he got to about the Ben Hill County line that he was to turn around and go back. He was told to turn around about the time he got to the county line. Somebody had to be up there in that orchard in order to tell him to turn around and go back. I don't know if there wasn't anything that they found, there wasn't anything substantial, or he was just turned around because they didn't want him up there. Newt Hudson was Bo's granddaddy. And back then, he had a lot of pull, and you didn't mess with him. He was a state representative at the time, a lot of money in the community. He was just powerful. That search happened, and according to her, Alan Morgan from the Irwin County Sheriff's Department was called out there to the pecan orchard, but was then told to turn around right when he got there. I think it's safe to assume that any police officer sent to investigate something in a murder case would not just turn around and go back home unless somebody else in law enforcement they trusted told them to do so, not just some random person. So who told him that? And why? And what about the other officer, Nelson Polk? Was he the one who made it out there that day? It's possible. This case has become very muddy. It's very sad, but it seems like a lot of people knew what happened to Tara all these years and kept it a secret. And my goal is not to assign blame to anyone. My goal is to find the truth. If law enforcement searched the Pecan Orchard in 2005, that needs to be known. If this case could have been solved 12 years ago, that needs to be known. How do you think people like Marcus Harper or Heath Dykes feel about that? And if several friends of Bo and Ryan knew about this too... Why did they never say anything else? Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. 
I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. As I've been digging around in these areas, to put it point blank, it's become a very uncomfortable task. Those who knew about this don't want me digging around anywhere. And many of these people have made that very clear to me. I've offered to protect their identity, disguise their voice, and I've even offered for them to go off record entirely just to find out the whole truth here. But none of them will do it. If you truly have nothing to lose, then why are you still keeping a secret? The obvious answer is, maybe there's more to this story. A few weeks after I started digging into this, I hit a frightening road bump. My Facebook account was hacked. Yeah, I mean, Facebook is in there trying to do something, too, so I'm not sure how much... I just logged into the account. What's the, what's the email address? It's upandvanished at yahoo.com, and they also made it painlindsay06 at yahoo.com. They also deleted your one that was affiliated with your Facebook account, and theirs was there. At first, I wasn't sure if this hack was related to the case at all. My wife Cassie had one of her IT friends trying to trace down who did this while I was in a cab on the way to the airport in New York City. A very inopportune time. What I'm going to actually look up the name that I sent you, though, Payne, on that picture and see if I can find anything with it. Okay. But there's, I think he's using like software that you use to trace IP addresses. He's like, you know, we should be able to find who this person is. Um, but what we were, what we really needed to do was get back into your Facebook, but yeah. now that that's gone too. I went, when I looked it up after I, it was super late. Uh-huh. I looked it up and it was still, it was still active. And there was, yeah. there was nothing new on your page or the Up and Vanish page mm-hmm. as far as posts. You're back. You just came back. You don't have a picture. This is so weird. What the hell? Whoever did this somehow compromised my email account associated with my Facebook. And when my wife was able to regain access to the email account, she saw that whoever did this had made two new email addresses. And one of them was upandvanished at yahoo.com. I didn't make that email address. Clearly, this hack was related to the case. Eventually, I was able to regain access, but I was still pretty unnerved by it. Everything in this case right now has a new aura to it. People in this case are pushing back, but I'm not stopping. With so many secrets in this case, it makes the gag order look even more suspicious. A gag order in general is supposed to be the last resort, but in this case, it was signed by the judge and put into effect just four days after Ryan's arrest. 
The gag order states that anyone in law enforcement cannot talk or comment on this case in any way. What is everyone so afraid of? I have a couple theories on that. And the first one I'll share with you is this. Remember Bo's friend Darren, the former army friend who sent me all those screenshots of his text message conversations with Bo? In one of Darren's conversations, Bo told him this. Maybe they have some problems with their case due to the statute of limitations. It turns out there was an earlier search done by local guys who never reported it to the GBI. I don't know when it occurred, but the clock starts ticking on the statute then. I showed this to Dusty Vassy while sitting in my car one night recently in Osceola. Do you mean that that actually could allow him to get off? <sighs> That's what he's saying. That's why they want to keep that shit quiet. That's why they want to keep that shit so fucking quiet. Because it might jeopardize their case. It might jeopardize all of it. At least in the charges against Bo. I don't know about Ryan. I don't think so about Ryan. But it said something about statutes of limitations being waived because it was not aware they were not aware of the crime until a certain certain date in the um, charges, the arrest warrants against Bo. Holy shit, dude! I don't know if Bo Dukes was part of what they were told about, but would that matter? Because they knew the crime happened. Damn, that's huge, dude. No wonder they were so concerned about it. But it's it's shady. I mean, I, I hate that the law says this, that, that, that somebody can actually get away from it with all this. But it's shady if the GBI was trying to keep it quiet just so that their case wouldn't fall apart when they're supposed to uphold the law. If the search happened back in 2005 then according to the statute of limitations on the crimes Bo committed, he may be able to get off scot-free. This seemed insane. And right or wrong, it seemed to make sense that a gag order would be in place to prevent that from becoming public. But could he really get away with this? I asked Philip Holloway to elaborate on this. Here's the thing about the statute of limitations. If a law enforcement officer knows that a person has committed an act, not necessarily knows that the person committed a crime, but knows that somebody committed an act, then the statute of limitations begins to run at that time. The statute of limitations can be told. That means the clock would stop ticking if the act or the offender is unknown to the authorities, but that tolling exception cannot be based on the subjective opinion of a district attorney as to whether or not there was enough evidence to file charges against a particular person at that time. That actually comes from a, a case from uh, 2015 called Holloman versus State. Of course, there's no statute of limitations on murder, so if there's any evidence that ties Bo in any way to committing the actual murder, even if he's a party to the crime or an accessory rather than the actual perpetrator, then theoretically he could be charged with a murder because there is no statute of limitations on murder. But basically, for every other crime, there is a statute of limitations for example, other crimes that are punishable by death or life imprisonment 
the statute of limitations on those sort of things is seven years. And anything else other than rape, which happens to be a 15-year statute of limitations, everything else is basically four years. So any felony that Bo's currently facing, the statute of limitations would be four years. And that raises some interesting possibilities. For example, Bo's lawyer figures this out and decides, hey, we want to challenge the charges against Bo, then he can file with the court something called a demurrer. In other words, it's something called a plea in bar. It's basically a challenge to whether or not the, the charges can proceed. And if the charges cannot proceed because they're barred by the statute of limitations, the question then becomes what leverage, if any, does the district attorney have over Bo and how can he coerce, if you will, or force or encourage Bo to continue to cooperate, to come to court and provide truthful testimony? Because if they don't have a criminal prosecution to hang over his head, he's a lot less motivated to participate in the process. But here's the other side of that coin. We have, of course, lots of reason to believe that Bo has made statements to authorities. We know that he's made statements to third parties. We know that he has information at a minimum about what happened to Tara after she died. And we know that he's talked about that stuff. So if they drop a subpoena in his hand, that subpoena is a court order to come testify. And the law says when you testify, you have to testify truthfully. So if he comes to court under a subpoena and he testifies in a way that the authorities believe to be untruthful, he could then be prosecuted for perjury. So unless Bo just completely goes off the grid and can't be found and they can't drop a subpoena in his hand, they still have some leverage because he's made statements. They can make him come to court. If he refuses to honor a subpoena, the sheriff can literally pick him up and drag him into court, kicking and screaming in handcuffs if necessary, because both sides, the prosecution and the defense, are entitled to what's called compulsory process. That means they have the subpoena power of the court. They could also be subject to contempt of court if they don't comply with a court order. But usually what happens is the judge would issue what's called a writ of attachment and basically authorizes the sheriff to go pick the person up if they don't honor a subpoena. So if his testimony in court differs in any way from the statements that he made to law enforcement, not only could he potentially face a perjury charge, but his testimony in court could be impeached, that is, shown by the prosecutor or the defense to be different from what he said in the past. And a prior inconsistent statement is, in fact, what we call substantive evidence. So if a person is talking out of both sides of their mouth, they're saying one thing in court, but they said something else previously, then either side can argue that their previous statement is the statement that the jury should rely on. The ironic thing about this, if, in fact, there is a statute of limitations problem and Bo can't be prosecuted, then it takes away a very strong defense argument because what happens is defense lawyers will attack the credibility of a witness who's testifying under some grant of immunity or pursuant to some type of a plea deal that's conditioned on truthful testimony. In other words, they get in front of the jury and they say, look, the only reason this person came in here and said this is because they have a lot to gain. 
the jury would be entitled to hear all about any deals that Bo may have on the table, whether it's immunity or probation or whatever. And the defense can then use that as a way of saying this witness is not credible because he's simply being paid in the sense for his testimony, paid in the currency, which is leniency from the prosecution. So if Bo is simply testifying at a trial pursuant to a subpoena and doesn't have any deal on the table because he can't be prosecuted, it takes away that argument and could actually play better for the prosecution. Of course, the downside would be that Bo simply gets away with doing whatever it is that he is alleged to have done and can't be prosecuted. A few episodes back, Dusty told me that he was called in by the GBI and questioned about a possible leak from the grand jury. Dusty spoke to somebody about this leak who provided some inside information, but he wouldn't tell me his source. I don't blame him. But thankfully, just recently, they came to me. Their voice has been disguised to protect them. He said that uh, standing over her when she woke up and that... uh freaked him out so he hit her and uh and i said with what and he said well hold on so he started telling me he said he hit her and then i guess uh it scared him and he left he came back the next day or he went back the next day and um wrapped her up in a blanket or quilt what was so crazy was his cousin was telling him yeah just right there in in, in daylight middle of the day i mean i'm thinking the morning time he went back and got her and put her in right in the blanket and put her in the back of the truck. I guess took her out to the orchard. Basically, I guess happened in the dark whenever he hit her, and then he freaked out. He left, and then he came back the next day. That's what this is what the guy told me that he said. He didn't say anything about um, what he hit her with to me, you know. And then that's when it all came out about the hand thing about it went from hands to hand. And I'm thinking, when I, you know, all that came out, and then they started saying that all the GBI came down was asking um, Dusty about the leak. You know, then I'm freaking out. I'm like, God dang, can I do anything without getting in fucking trouble for it? You know, but he, the guy did not tell me, don't tell, and he didn't say. Um, and I'm thinking, if he's telling me that, I, I mean, there's no telling who else they're telling that. This was relatively detailed information. Though it sounded pretty crazy, it had some detail to it. And the only way the GBI would have that much detail about how Tara was murdered is if Ryan Duke or Bo Dukes told them. So where's the story coming from? Did Ryan confess when he was questioned? Or did Bo tell the GBI this story? I've been in Osceola several times recently, and I can tell you from being there that most locals aren't buying this narrative. But for all we know, that could be exactly how things happened. And maybe we're just missing the vital pieces that make this whole story make sense. I recently talked to a local from Osceola who told me what he's been hearing, apparently directly from the horse's mouth. A friend of mine who, uh, who I trust, he told me he has some friends that's in the GBI and that he actually, I guess it would be illegal, but he did a, a ride along with these, with these GBI agents that he, that he grew up with. And uh, they basically told him that uh, the story that they were told, or I guess the GBI, 
is following along too was that Bo and Ryan were together that night and that um they basically drove by our house and Bo dropped Ryan off and rode around the block. I don't know if he parked or what, but came back around and Ryan was there. I just told her, told uh, Bo, she's dead. GBI are claiming that it was one punch to the temple and that from there they took her body out to the pecan orchard. From what they're kind of gathering is that I know this is really creepy and I don't even know if it's been rumored around, but that he's done this before, like entered into her house, maybe watched her sleep. You kind of have an an obsession. That made me think, you know, why she had the new door lock and all those things too. I don't know if I believe that story or not. I think all they're going off of is what Bo and Ryan's saying. That makes me not believe the story altogether because I know if I was Bo, somebody who claims they were not involved whatsoever, willingly involving yourself in a murder, (laughs) this doesn't make sense. I mean, I wouldn't do that for my wife. They also said that his immunity is off the table. That's what the GBI agent told my friend. They called him in a lie. Breaking the terms of his uh, immunity or something, something along those lines. They did did say it was off the table. I say all of this is secondhand, but it comes from people I I trust. I don't, I don't see any of these people making up stories like this. So I I fully believe that's what the GBI knew and believed at the time, based off of testimony. But to me, it seems like I don't know. (laughs) I'm not that big of a conspiracy nut, but seems like Bo corroborated stories with people he told. Just to have the GBI go and check up his story that he tells them. I don't even their personalities. The story doesn't fit. You know, the GBI said too that they took her car basically on a joyride, Tara's car. So that makes absolutely no sense. None, none of the GBI's story made sense to me. Like even as my friend was telling me, I was like, this doesn't add up at all. You know, you know Tara's car, the seat was pushed all the way back. You know, and I know Ryan, he's he's about as tall as I am, about five seven, five six. <laughs> I tell you, you were not pushing any seats back. What I gathered from it was that you know, if the seat was pushed back, then someone tall was driving that car. And I think Tara was five three, maybe, five three, five four. You know, I just I don't understand it. You know, even Ryan's like Facebook posts and everything, he's not a man of his own words. You know what I mean? It's a lot of quotes from other people, seems like a follower, or Bo's more of a manipulator. Well, I can tell you there's nobody down here that believes a single word of the official story. I mean, I know people who's, you know, close personal friends with the Hudsons and, and the Dukes, and they're like, yeah, I think Bo did it. You know, just based off of knowing him and hearing the story. Because, I mean, I don't think a, a, someone who's sane even believes that somebody who wasn't involved in a crime willingly involves himself in hiding a body. None of that makes sense. Personally, I don't even think it happened at the house. I mean, it, it would make more sense that it happened at the pecan orchard. I just don't see these two <laughs> pulling off the perfect crime, transporting bodies, leaving nothing behind. It makes more sense that gloves were planted than it was they accidentally dropped them. I mean, how do you pull off the perfect crime but leave gloves? My one guy who's, who's real good friends with the GBI people, he's he's pretty up to date on what the GBI knows. From what? He told me that, I mean, honestly, I had no choice but to believe it at this point. 
you know, I think I think it's more of a thing they're happy to close the case, you know, wanting to get it over and you know not hang over their heads kind of thing. But inside, I don't I don't believe anybody believes it at this point. Or at that point, you had Ryan confessing to it. You had Bo Bo's testimony with people to corroborate it. So it was leading down that path. I believe, I mean, uh, maybe Ryan's lawyer spoke some sense into him, hopefully. I'm not sure. I mean, but for him to basically enter into the not guilty plea, I think it's about to flip upside down. A lot of rumors in this case end up being true. So what's going to happen next in this case? No one around Osilla seems to believe what they're being told anymore. And frankly, I don't either. Is the possibility of a search early on in this case going to let Bo Duke skate scot-free? Well, according to the breaking news that came out just today in this case, the answer might be no. Hey, Payne, I don't know if you'll get this, but uh, it's Monday, 12.15 here. I just caught the tail end of this on the uh, local news today. Seems like there's something going on in the Ocilla today. Um, I thought you might want to check into that, okay? Bye-bye. Big news came today in the Tara Grinstead case, and the first person to hear about it was my grandma. Today, a grand jury hearing was held in Ben Hill County, and they indicted Bo Dukes on all charges. A grand jury has indicted in Ben Hill County, has indicted Bo Dukes for his alleged role in the cover-up of the murder of Tara Grinstead. WGXA's Eric Mock is live outside of the Ben Hill County Courthouse where he picked up that indictment. And Eric, what do we find in that document? They're moving forward with all the charges for Bo Dukes. As far as Ryan Duke is concerned, it's unclear if the GBI will continue their current narrative when it comes time for a trial or if newfound information between now and then might affect that. Even though the whole story of what happened to Tara is still very unclear, one thing is very clear. Bo's admission to burning Tara Grinstead's body. It's all the events surrounding this known fact that are still so murky. Like I said, I, I don't know who you're connected to, but especially if, if you're somewhere at night rambling around the county, just just be careful. I, I just, I have a lot of distrust because of things that I've, I've, I've seen. And when my father-in-law was, uh, was sheriff, I, I know for, I'll say 95% facts, that a murder was covered up as a suicide. Things go on there. I don't put anything past anybody. Everybody can have a, a, a dark night of the soul. Oh, honey, I'll tell you what. You, there's so many dark and dirty secrets in those cellars. It is not to be believed. I can tell you things that would make your hair stand on end. Ryan is related to Nelson Park, who is the deputy that walked him into the courtroom for his arraignment that day. He's, he's a deputy sheriff. Thanks for listening, guys. There's only three main episodes left this season. Our story on the investigation of Tara Grinstead will conclude with episode 24. There's so much more to come in the final chapters of this story, and we hope by the end of this season, we know all the truth in this case. 
Today's episode was mixed and mastered by Resonate Recordings. If you want to improve the quality of your podcast or start a podcast of your own, go to ResonateRecordings.com and get your first episode produced for free. This episode was recorded at Industrious Atlanta, Pont City Market. For $250 off your first month's office rent, visit IndustriousOffice.com slash Vanished. This Thursday, we're holding a Q&A episode. So if you have any questions for Philip Holloway or myself, please leave us a voicemail at 770-545-6411. And be sure to stay tuned for k 7 is next Monday, June 26th, and episode 22 on July 3rd. Thanks, guys. I'll see you soon.